Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by Founders Card. I usually don't spring for paid membership programs, but this one is a little different. The offering is targeted to entrepreneurs and business owners, and the card enables premier benefits from leading airlines, hotels, lifestyle brands, and business services. A few of my favorite benefits include free access to MailChimp Pro, Dashlane Premium, and TripIt Pro. You can even get big discounts to services I love like Silvercar, 99designs, Apple, and AT&T. My favorite, though, are the travel benefits where you get an automatic status such as Hilton Honors Gold, American Airlines Platinum, and Virgin America Gold. And while I often use the great app Hotel Tonight for travel, the Founders Card discounts can be massive too. If you go to founderscard.com forward slash Meb, podcast listeners can sign up for the discounted 395 bucks a year with no initiation fee. And that's a saving from the normal cost of around 600 bucks per year. Again, that's founderscard.com forward slash Meb. Hello, podcast listeners. Today, we're welcoming a good friend as well as the CEO of ETF.com, Dave Nadig. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm a, I'm a loyal listener, so it's an honor to be here. So normally, I'm hanging out with you and you're wearing a, a black band t-shirt from some uh, <laughs> historical band. I, you're not today. What's going on? I feel like I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm luxuriating in my home office on a beautiful summer day, so uh, no need to, no need to, to gussy up. Don't, don't be insulted that I didn't gussy up for you. Matt. It, it also looks <laughs> like you're you have a like race car seat that you're in in your podcast studio. Is is that is that a pretty fancy chair? What's the story? There? I, yeah, I, I'm I mean I have lots of hobbies, but among them are uh, playing video games and playing music. So between the two of those, I have a nice recording setup and a really nice chair to play video games in. So it all works out. I, I tried one of those MO, what do you call it, balance chairs for about a week that's supposed to improve your core, which mine's pretty terrible. And and I quickly gave it to my one of my coworkers as well as a stand up desk. So I'm I've been unable to adopt almost any of the trends in <laughs> office furniture. Anyway, all right. So most of our listeners are going to be familiar with you. Why don't you give us just a just a one minute background? I mean, you've your history is super interesting. I mean, from you know obviously FactSet and ETF.com, but also you know lots of other shops. Give, give us a quick just tour of of the Natig history, and then we'll jump in. The short version is, so I started at a, I went to BU for a finance MBA, surprise. At a school that was in the early 90s, I went and started a consulting firm that became Cerulli Associates. 
Uh, I started that with Kurtz Rooley in like 91, 92. And we did a lot of work on what was then a new idea, which was the idea of fee-only financial advisors. Can you imagine? We did a lot of work in the 401k space, how fee-only financial advisors were really starting to move that needle. My biggest client at the time was a little index shop in San Francisco called Wells Fargo Nico Investment Advisors, uh, which went on to become Barclays Global Investors and then BlackRock. And I worked for most of the 90s, I worked at what was Wells Fargo Nico and then BGI, working on what they called retail. And for them, retail encompassed pretty much anything that wasn't an institutional separately managed account. So for a while, I ran their 401k business. I was involved in their early ETF efforts, which were called WEBS, uh, which were what eventually became the iShares product line. Then left there sort of, I don't know, 98-ish, I think, uh, sort of the height of the dot-com boom. And with my partner at the time, Don Luskin, and we went and ran money. So we actually ran some transparent mutual funds at the time. Uh, now we would just call those basically your ETFs, right? They were just they were transparent mutual funds at the time because the the whole idea of an active ETF hadn't quite shown up anywhere. Uh, and I ran Active Money through the crash, uh, took a couple years off, and then joined ETF.com. All right, perfect. And and I like to think of Dave as the the one person that if. Of of the 0.1% of people that ap- actually read prospectuses, Nadig is, is probably <laughs> the one you want to go to if you have questions. So if providers, if you're listening and you think you're going to sneak in um, some language, he's going to find it and publish it. So, so be forewarned. So today uh, is going to be pretty wide ranging, all encompassing, probably go down some deep, deep rabbit holes in the ETF space, but, but also be pretty educational, I think, for a lot of uh, listeners who may not be as familiar with the structure. But why don't we get started top level 30,000 feet provide a little context one of the one of the best articles i want to reference was one you did the end of last year called outlook for etfs in 2017 and you talked about kind of four main issues and if if you can't remember what they are i'll i'll give you some bullet points but but why don't we get started and in the beginning i think was talking a lot about flows and uh why don't we use that as as a jumping off point yeah. So, I mean, I definitely, I, I thought then, and, and certainly it's come true so far, and I continue to think that this is a uh, this is a big year for ETFs, and I think it's a phase shift year for ETFs. And what I mean by that is, um, if you think about the history of ETFs the last 25 years, they started out as purely institutional products. Um, you know, when when we launched the the first web series back at Wells Fargo, it was uh, like Malaysia and Argentina. It was taught such a random collection of countries looking back on it. But the reason we did it was we had institutional clients that wanted access to a liquid trading vehicle. And it was also a, a little bit of a settlement arbitrage, right? It wasn't so much that they couldn't get access to those markets. It was they would rather own the security themselves than just hand off the SMA to somebody else to run, say, a tiny sleeve of Argentina or something like that. So they used ETFs as a way to get exposure to a market that otherwise was going to be extremely difficult to to get access to. That was that was really the genesis of it. And and products like SPY were just purely trading vehicles. They were ways of equitizing cash at two o'clock in the afternoon because you didn't have time to actually get the the full trade in that you would want from say I don't know a pile of dividends that you'd uh, you know accumulated during the course of the day. So they started as 
as these purely institutional products and really stayed as institutional trading products through the 90s. And really in the 2000s was when we saw uh, the financial advisor community really latch on to ETFs, predominantly for two reasons, the tax efficiency. Uh, you know, most ETFs don't ever pay capital gains out. And because of the cost, uh, and they were under pressure and continue to be under pressure um, to justify their fees, uh, to justify the fees of managers that they were selecting and overpriced mutual funds. And so ETFs were a great way for some advisor shops to really cut their costs and, and do right by their customers. So that was sort of phase two. And then I think for the last five or six years, while of course institutions and advisors are still hugely important, we've seen retail really show up. And that's been helped to some extent by things like uh, robo-advisors. It's been helped by huge campaigns from retail shops like Schwab and Fidelity. Uh, and certainly iShares has done a ton to educate the market. So we've got all these cylinders hitting, and that's driving growth by itself. But really, what I think we've come around to all the way around the other side is that institutions are now really taking ETFs seriously. They're using ETFs in new ways that, frankly, they're using the ways advisors have, which is they're using it for core exposure, and they're using it as part of more complex strategies at the, at the biggest pensions and endowments that are doing a lot of self-directed work. They're starting to not use ETFs for sort of a fringe 5% of their portfolio. Portfolio, they're starting to use them for core 30, 40% of the portfolio. And that's just driven huge assets. And so if you look at the space, you know, ETFs, let's talk about getting close to being what, 3 trillion. The, yeah. the mutual fund space is still five times as big as that. And I remember I was on a, the Barron's ETF Outlook in 2013. And I said, you know, I asked the, the rest of the panelists, I said, at what point do you guys think ETF assets cross mutual fund assets? And everyone laughed. And then I said, no, I'm serious. I actually think it'll happen in the next 10 years. And then everyone laughed even more. But you're starting to see it. But but ETFs still, despite all the flows, are a pretty small percentage relative to mutual funds. Do you see this as a kind of generational transfer? Because you talk a little bit about you know, people inheriting and pension funds and 401ks? Or do you see this more as a like Netflix blockbuster moment <laughs> where all of a sudden it just it falls off a cliff? Like what what's what's the future of flows look like, do you think? Yeah. So look, there's, I, I, you know, I, I am the CEO of a thing called ETF.com and obviously I've been in the ETF industry for 25 years. So I'm obviously f fond of the structure, but it's not, it's not the be all and end all. It's just a wrapper. And I think sometimes you have to step back and remember that really at the core, what we're talking about is, in, you know, what are your investor outcomes and the, the vehicle that you use should be the one that helps engender the best outcome. Now, ETFs, are great for a lot of common issues, but they're also awful for some other things, right? If you were going to use an ETF to do dollar cost averaging of $500 a month, I tell you, you were an idiot, right? Because the transaction fees of interacting with the stock market would eat you alive. And so so there, because of that, there are places where ETFs naturally don't make sense, like most 401k plans, like most people's you know, IRAs if they're contributing regularly, or a 529 plan for your college education. Most investors shouldn't be putting their money in ETFs in those wrappers with the current structures we have. So mutual funds will continue to get a lot of those assets, uh, and those assets are huge. They're a big part of the mutual fund industry right now, not, not retail. So even when you see positive flows in the traditional mutual fund business, it's almost exclusively in these kinds of defined contribution plan um, segments. So what 
the the assets that ETFs are capturing are actually not so much those assets. They're capturing incremental flow that might have otherwise gone in from a retail investor, uh, you know, an existing IRA that's already got four hundred thousand bucks in it or something like that. And it's capturing uh, all this institutional money. So you've got it, it, mutual funds aren't going to go away. Now, are they going to cross? Yeah. I mean, I have a model that predicts about 2025 uh, is probably when we see you know the mutual fund industry come down and the ETF industry hockey stick up enough that you cross at something like, I don't know, $14 trillion or something like that. Just I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it, it's roughly around there. And we're totally on track to do that. We look at the growth rates we're seeing that I think it's totally doable. Perfect. Well, you and I are going to have a dinner bet then over because if I if I had said in Barron's 10 years, that would have put it at 2023. So I'm going to take the under you get over on 2025 <laughs> and we'll we'll do a podcast uh, when they cross or, or maybe at the ETF.com conference 2023 or whenever it is. Restaurant of your choice. Ooh, I'll take that even back. better. I'm a sushi guy, so I'll pick somewhere expensive. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about because uh, you hear that a lot. You hear people say, well, ETFs haven't got into the 401k space. And, you know, we laugh because we, we say, well, that there are two main advantages, one of them being tax efficiency doesn't matter at all in that space. But, right. you know, we kind of see it more as a shift from, you know, everyone talks about mutual funds and ETFs and ETFs have already had like 200, I think, billion in flows this year, going to have probably a record year. And, and also this active versus passive debate. But but so much of it is really from this high fee world to a lower fee structure. And, and is, is that something you're seeing? Is that, you know, kind of the... Oh, yeah. So if you, even if you just look inside the ETF market, right, the weighted average cost of an ETF right now, you take all the assets, divide them, you know, by what those assets are paying, it's about 23 and a half basis points. Even there, that's coming down. That's down from 26 a couple of years ago. So even though we have new products launching that are either smart beta or full active, where there's sort of naturally a higher cost base for those things, the assets continue to flow into low cost of vanilla. I mean, that does seem to be where most of the assets are going. That's true in the mutual fund space too, right? The only the only major traditional mutual fund company, active manager, that actually had positive inflows last year was Vanguard. Like Vanguard was the number one gaining active manager last year. I mean, that should tell you a lot. It's cost that's winning here. I think the the active-passive debate, which I'm just as guilty of wading into as everybody else, I think misses the point a lot. This is really about cost. You know, it's interesting. We, we I want to make two comments. One is that we got into a recent debate at UCLA where I said it was on active-passive. And I was like, man, I would rather take a penalty kick to the face than discuss active <laughs> and passive again. Because to me, a quant, it's all active. And so right. it's a little frustrating because you have out there passive index funds. We saw one the other day. It's an S&P 500 fund by Rydex that charges 2.3%, literally an S&P clone. And then you have these active ETFs now that are 20 bips. So the, the whole world is so murky. But I wanted to touch on an interesting comment you made, because if you look at the ETF league tables, which is a, a chart on ETF.com, and it lists the top 40 or 50 ETF providers, and the big three, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, have like 80% of the assets. But even number 30 or 40 still manages like a billion. So there's a pretty long tail. You guys actually did an interesting article where you sorted them on revenue rather than AUM. And it actually came to some different conclusions. And in a world 
where there's 300 ETF launches a year, you know, maybe maybe talk to us a little bit about if if you were an ETF provider, you know, you may not necessarily be targeting the low cost world and competing with Vanguard, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that that revenue resort, which is, you know, there's some articles when you run a website like EDF.com, there's some articles you just get to keep writing over and over again. There's probably like a dozen of them I could just revisit every year because they're always entertaining and they're always different enough to be worth writing. And that's one of them. The natural result is firms that have done a decent job gathering assets in super expensive strategies rocket up that list. So what is a super expensive strategy? Well, leverage and inverse funds, right? Clearly not the average investment. It's not what everybody thinks of when they think of an ETF. Um, there's only about 50 billion or 60 billion in leverage and inverse funds. We talk about them an awful lot, but they're actually a very tiny portion of the ETF market, but they almost all charge north of 95 basis points. So they're incredibly lucrative for the issuers that are putting those things out there. Maybe less so for some pe- the people who are trading them, but, but you know, they do what they say on the tin. You know, I think that it is true if you were an issuer coming in, Trying to compete on low cost beta right now would be that would be a brutal uh, a brutal entry. Like the only one we've seen that's had any success in the last decade has been Schwab, and that's because they came with distribution baked in, right? There and and they they came in with a you know we don't care if we make money strategy because they're really in the game of capturing assets, not necessarily driving people into specific funds. We, we talk in the office about this idea, and I, I joked with a common friend Venuto about this, and I said you know at some point we're going to see. Because my company has, the, the, to my knowledge, the only ETF with a permanent 0% management fee. I said, at some point, you're going to see some of these innovative issuers out there launch an entire suite of funds that are t- 0% management fee, but keep part of the short interest rebate, right? Right. And I said, yeah. you could do that. And I'm, I really want someone to do it because we have enough bad ideas here already. So <laughs> um, if you're listening, if you're in and there's like a dozen big banks and index shops that have totally failed in the ETF space. So here's a good idea for you guys. Go launch a bunch of 0% fee funds, take a huge market share. You'll still probably make 50 bips in some areas. Anyway, just you you can buy Nadig and I beers for, for giving you that idea. <laughs> As I mentioned, we were going to go off the rails immediately and we have, but going back to your outlook piece, you talked about some other ideas. So so looking forward, you know, the, the, the trends are going to continue of, of assets coming into lower costs, but you also talk about some areas that haven't really, in my mind, been realized yet with there's been a lot of media but not a lot of dollars one's one's the uh, esg area maybe you want to touch on that a little bit you know, I did, this gets back to, you know, where's the growth going to come from? You hinted at this earlier, you know, sort of, is this a generational thing? There is no question, it's just statistically accurate, that we're in the midst of the greatest intergenerational wealth transfer in history. Um, we've got $30 trillion over the next 30 years that are going to roll from an older generation to a younger generation. Now, that that often gets misreported or, or uh, sort of poorly reported as, like, you know, millennials are going to take over. For investing and that means everybody's going to swipe left to buy or something like that which you know i think that misses the point we're not talking about 
you know, the kids who were living in basements. We're talking about uh, the 40-year-old daughter of a wealthy 70-year-old couple who now starts showing up in your office, Mab, or in, you know, in another uh, advisor office. And that 70-year-old is bringing that 40-year-old woman in to talk about what's going to happen when they receive this wealth. And they're talking about trust transfers, and they're talking about all the things that are, are relevant for good estate planning. And that when that money hits, right, when that $5 million portfolio rolls down to that 40-year-old woman, her desires about what to do with money are actually fundamentally different. And we've seen this. It's been polled dozens and dozens of times. So it always comes back the same. Like people who are now in their 30s and 40s actually care about what gets done with their money. They want their money to not just earn something, but also do something. And, you know, that gets labeled as socially responsible investing or environmental social governance, you know, ESG funds, et cetera. And I think a lot of us that have been in this industry for a while hear that stuff and we roll our eyes. And I think it's okay that we roll our eyes because for the most part, that has been a flop in retail terms, right? Retail investors talk a good game about this, but when push comes to shove, they generally chase performance. They don't really stick to their knitting on buying a, you know, an ESG fund. That seems to be different this time, expensive words on Wall Street. So I think what we're going to see, and indeed have started to see, is more and more funds targeting that wealth transfer pool. Now, it's not going to be a hockey stick. It's not like all of a sudden, there's, you know, in three years, we're going to have, you know, a trillion dollars in in ESG ETFs, but I think you're going to see the product launches and you're going to see slow, steady growth. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that there's so much media attention and talk about a lot of things. And we definitely see that younger investors consume, obviously, information in a different way as, as well as the interface. And if you look at kind of the, the advent of a lot of these digital offerings and robo-advisors, the, the great irony, at least in my mind, is many of the most successful ones are, of course, A, the incumbents, so Vanguard and Schwab, but also the average age is still pretty high. I mean, for, for our digital offering, the average age is north of 50, and, and that's for a very technologically focused offering. So I, I definitely think it needs to be incorporated. It's an area that I, I'm just kind of a, a pleasant bystander. I don't have any strong opinions one way or the other. But ESG, I think it will be an interesting area that everyone certainly is interested in and talking about. But we'll see. Um, we'll see where it goes. You know, I think the important thing to, to do as an investor, if you're thinking about these funds, is like let's just like talking about smart bait or anything else. You got to separate the hype from the reality here. And and because we've got a lot of new product launches coming into the space, there'll be a lot of hype because everybody wants to talk about their product. You know, you still have to put on the same due diligence hat you put on if you were evaluating a small cap manager, right? It's the same same process. You know, smart bait is interesting because we think about in a world where there's so many what we call closet indexers, which are which are funds that basically say they're doing something different, but because of the size and the and the stocks they're investing in basically look like an S&P 500 clone. There's been some new resources that come out. We'll add them to the show notes from our friends uh, Wes Gray, and we mentioned some others that, that look at active share and, and, and indices. And um, you can actually say, hey, is this fund actually really different? Because if, if you're paying for beta, you want to be paying as little as possible. If you're truly doing something active, in many ways, you want something highly concentrated that's going to look a lot different. But yeah, I mean, there's so many of these smart beta funds. There's something like 300 ETFs that launch per year. You, you talk a little bit in this outlook about distribution 
and regulatory issues? Are there sort of any thoughts you have on there and what, what kind of the future is going to look like there before uh, kind of we move on to some other topics? Boy, that's a crystal ball. I mean, the, the regulatory side is such a, I mean, I don't want to say mess, but I'll say mess right now. Not because I, I think that our new SEC commissioner is going to be bad. I don't actually think he's going to be great. But we have a pretty dysfunctional regulatory system in place right now. We're down so many commissioners at the SEC. We're down effectively the entire CFTC. <laughs> they can't even have meetings anymore because there's only two of them kicking around. Because of that, because we just literally don't have the bodies in the chairs that we need, it makes me nervous because it's easy to have knee-jerk regulation when you don't have the staff to actually do the hard work. And it's hard work. Right? I have a lot of respect for the work that you know FINRA and the SEC and, and the CFTC, et cetera, all do. Um, it's not work I'd want to do, that's for sure, even though I, you know, am one of the nerdy people that reads all their stuff. Um, so when we think about the things that we know have been in the pipeline or that people are asking about, it's tough to see how they clear out the log jams until they restaff. And that's probably still another year before we see that, right? Because obviously we're in an administration that's not getting a lot done. Uh, and one of the things they're not doing is putting up a lot of obvious choices to fill a lot of staff roles. So, you know, the things that are in the hopper that maybe we'll see, um, the big one's probably non-transparent active. Presidian has had a filing in play for, God, what is it now, two or three years in front of the SEC on what is, a, frankly, a pretty straightforward solution to the idea of running money actively without having to tell you what's in the portfolio. Now, even if that gets approved, a whole separate conversation about whether people actually want to buy those funds or not, that's a separate issue. But that's a big one that's been logjammed forever. It's hard to see how that one clears. Um, you know, the other ones, you know, Bitcoin ETFs is, is a big one. That's back under review again. All right, let's hear it. Wait, let's shift. Let's, we may as well talk about it. That was a question I had. Okay. Someone wanted to answer. May as well. What, what's, what's the deal with Bitcoin? What's going on? You know, I think the biggest problem, you know, the first of all, I, I should probably point out that I, well, I, I don't know a lot about what's going on at the regulatory level. My understanding about what's going on with the Bitcoin ETF is it's not that they've been rejected because it's a terrible idea and they don't want Bitcoin. It was because of the amount of self-connections in the filings, meaning it's a, such a small ecosystem um, that it's hard for folks like the Winklevoss brothers to create an ETF that doesn't lean on some other part of their business dealings because they're heavily invested throughout the Bitcoin ecosystem. I think that's what probably tripped that up. Um, and that's a that's a solvable problem. And my guess is that's part of what's getting re-reviewed off that filing. I think a Bitcoin ETF of some sort is effectively inevitable because the the underlying security um, has a relatively robust market in it. I'm not a huge Bitcoin nut. I'm not a, not a crazy believer in it. I don't think it's going to change the world. But the structure of an ETF is so flexible that somebody will figure out a way to get in. It may, at this point, I think it may be most likely through the back door of a little OTC listed company called GBTC, which you can only buy on the pink sheets right now. But the underlying trust structure for it is written, and it's a, it's a it's a live trading security. It's not particularly liquid. It doesn't have great creation and redemption activity in it, so it trades at crazy premiums and discounts. But it's a live traded security that basically just would need to get promoted out of the pink sheets and then get APs to do creation and redemption activity, and then you'd have an ETF, and they would sort of backdoor it by never having had to go through the direct ETF approval process. 
It seems like, you know, an ETN, which is a, is a dead agreement with a, the issuer and you coming from the Barclays world, um, it seems like that would be a, a simple solution. Oh, but yeah. It, that, there's yeah. only one trade. There's one trading in Europe right now. That's right. So the, so the ETN structure is, is a logical one. The, the problem is finding a bank that's willing to put the hedge on, right? And because Bitcoin itself is so volatile and the volatility of the volumes is, very, you know, there's a lot of volatility in the volume of Bitcoin on any given day. I'm not sure I'd want to run that hedge book, <laughs> right? At the end of the day, somebody still has to buy and sell Bitcoin to manage the hedge for the ETN. Uh, it solves the, it solves the regulatory problem, but it doesn't necessarily solve the underlying problem, which is somebody's got to run the book. Interesting. And ETNs are always, I mean, it's, it's such a great structure without, with the exception of the credit risk, you know, in many ways, but you know, well, they can also and, be a little, hmm. and that's so overblown. Honestly, mm -hmm. I think the people who get really nervous about ETNs generally are doing one of two things. They're really, really overinflating the, the overnight bankruptcy risk of people like Citibank. There's, there's no Lehman level risk there to be worried about, in my opinion, from the big issuers of ETNs, or they're, they're focusing on the ETNs that don't trade. And that's certainly not an ETN problem, right? We have plenty, plenty of traditional ETFs that don't trade either. And, and ETN, for the listeners who aren't familiar, is, is a structure that is potentially pretty great because, you know, there's not necessarily any capital gains, right, from, from the, you know, trading. Most ETF don't have anyway, but potentially no income as well if you wanted to design something. Well, and... And you can take you. Can, it, there's a great tax dodge in it because because exchange traded notes are just notes. There's just they're just debt. The the IRS treats them as prepaid forward contracts, and what that means is they basically just get taxed like stocks, right? So you get long term capital gains treatment on it. So you can take something like a commodities investment, which you would have to pay sixty forty long short mark to market at the end of every year, if you did it the traditional way by buying futures, and you can sort of magically turn that into long-term capital gains treatment. So th that those tax dodges are real. And, and one of the ways that you could mitigate the, the credit risk is certainly having multiple counterparties. Challenge, of course, is a lot of the counterparties don't want to give up the, the revenue stream and share it with others, but it's certainly, certainly doable. We've considered it. it may go down that uh, alley at some point. Well, let's shift back, you know, so despite you going to potential, I'm going to nominate you for the SEC after this call. We need a little <laughs> Natick Drano in Washington. You know, so, so let's talk on a couple ideas that are probably popular ETF topics. You may be, you may be sick of talking about them, but, but they're questions we get a lot as well as regular investors, you know, often ask a lot. And in, in one of the jumping off points was you recently went to the money show, which is kind of like, I, I gave a talk there once and I'm trying to think of the right analogy. It's kind of like the wild west of individual investors. I mean, you have every possible everything from you know totally legit offering providers to to people hawking you know junior gold miner marijuana stock everything in between but you notice some differences this year so so maybe you talk a little bit about your experience recently at the money show and kind of what what you think some of the main ask questions were and, and topics were sure so i mean i've been doing the money shows off and on for 20 years at this point, you know, when, when it's sort of convenient and there's a city I want to be in anyway, I, I know the organizers pretty well. So they'll toss me on some panel somewhere. Um, and certainly over the years, so you just want to go to Orlando or where, this where one was, was this in one? Vegas. So oh, much better. 
That's and better. and it, there was a bit of a pundits panel. So it was me and Matt Hogan from Inside ETFs and Eric Belchunas from Bloomberg and sort of usual suspects for if you follow ETFs. Over the over the last few years, it's definitely been the case. There's been more focus on ETFs. Um, so you know, I, I'll, I'll often do an ETFs 101 panel or a hot topics panel. You know, and and the the room sizes have gone from you know an anemic 50 people to a couple hundred to this time we were on the main stage and there were thousands. Right. So it's definitely it's definitely grown in interest. But the thing that I found most interesting was even just a couple of years ago, the kind of questions I got were sort of the understandable coffee uh, cocktail party conversations like what's an ETF? How does it work? Is there any money in the vault for GLD? Uh, You know, just, just sort of really basic, frankly, fairly easy questions to answer, which I'm always happy to do. Right. That's core ETF education. That's great. This year, of course, there's self-selection who comes to these panels. The kinds of questions I got were like the kinds of questions I get from people who are in the ETF industry who are trying to get deeper into it. Uh, you know, people asking about swap counterparties for leveraged and inverse funds, right? I mean, like, I know people who trade, you know, millions of dollars of those things a day who don't understand how they work. They don't even know that they're swap counterparties, right? And, and people are asking, well, how can I find out who they are? And how can I evaluate how reliable they are? And what's my risk if... If the collateral that's being held against the counterparty risk is not enough, I mean, those are really good questions, you know, with complicated answers. You know, almost every person who came up to me had a similar uh, sort of set of questions around it. Now, it's always tough for me being in those environments because a lot of the folks that come up to you, uh, you know, are frankly sort of hobby day trading a million dollar portfolio. And that just makes me a little nervous, but it's their money. They can do what they want. I, you know, I used to be an active manager. So I'm now I'm, I'm the worst kind of person to put in those situations. Cause it's like being an, you know, it's like being a recovering alcoholic in a way. Well, your answer to all those questions should be just go to ETF.com. You can find more information. You do there. what you can. <laughs> Let's pause for a moment to hear from our sponsor. Do you exercise regularly? Are you committed to your health? If so, then you need to look into Health IQ. It's a different kind of life insurance company advocating for a health conscious lifestyle. With most traditional life insurance companies, you're penalized for red flags in your family history, like heart disease or in your lifestyle, such as smoking. But do these companies actually reward healthy living? Health IQ does. It uses science and data to secure special rates on life insurance for cyclists, runners, strength trainers, vegans, and all sorts of health-minded individuals. Research has shown that people who frequently exercise with intensity have a 22% lower risk of cancer, a 56% lower risk of heart disease, and up to a 34% lower risk of early death. If you're committed to living a health-conscious life, then it's time you learn more about how Health IQ could lower your life insurance rates today. Learn more and get a free quote at healthiq.com forward slash meb. Again, that's healthiq.com forward slash meb. And now back to the show. So one of the questions, I mean, I, I know that people are asking about, so leverage ETFs, covered calls, but a lot of people want to talk about liquidity. So why don't you just talk about ETF liquidity in general? Some, if there's any misconceptions or main takeaways you think people should consider, how illiquid can you go? Is, is it matter about volume? All that good stuff. What's, and this is kind of a Twitter question too. So look, there are a couple, couple of key takeaways I think everybody should always just have when they're approaching investing, right? One is, 
no matter what the answer is, like how a liquid, can you trade this? Can you not trade that? The first step is always trading hygiene, right? Which just means not being an idiot when you're putting your trades in. Uh, it means using limit orders. It means understanding how to assess fair value if you can. And that's true if you're trading small cap stocks. It's true if you're buying individual bonds. That That's like good trading hygiene saves lives, period. You know, start from there. Now, specific to ETFs, I think the, the question is almost always, you know, how illiquid is too illiquid to own? And the answer to that question is complicated because it's not like a linear scale. It's not like you can say, oh, well, once this ETF is trading 100,000 shares a day, have at it, do whatever you want, day trade it like crazy. Because two things happen. One is liquidity doesn't stand still. Um, so we saw an, an instance just a while ago of, of an emerging markets momentum fund, which I think is EEMO, it had basically never traded more than 10,000 shares. It was it was effectively a zombie ETF. I'm sure it was getting written up in you know people's death watch lists and everything else. And then boom, one day somebody allocated $250 million to the thing and liquidity picked way up, of course, because now it's on everybody's radar. Now all the high-frequency trading algorithms are watching for it. And now it's, it's hit a hurdle where people who did have sort of a silly rule of thumb, like it has to have $100 million, would now look at it again. So now it's trading. 50, 60, 80,000 shares a day. So if one day went from a have nots to a haves, I would argue it can happen exactly the other way. Um, and we've seen that a particular country can get hot. We see that we see this even in some of the iShares country funds. You know, Brazil will get hot and the Brazil ETF will all of a sudden become trade like water, right? Penny, penny wide all day long. Uh, you know, you could toss market orders in, you'd never get hurt. And then Six months later, it's trading 5,000 shares a day again. Um, and I, so I think you have to be conscious of the fact that liquidity is a moving target. And then the second big thing about ETFs that I think people often miss is that there's actually sort of a, a liquidity barbell in almost every ETF that's listed in the U.S. that you that you actually care about, with few exceptions. If you want to put get a hundred share trade in, you can get a hundred share trade in, and you can put it in the middle of the seemingly you know one percent widespread, and you'll get an execution, right? So at the very small end, there's enough activity that even ETFs that look like they never trade are are buyable uh, and ownable. And then all the way at the other end, that same super liquid ETF that's, that you want to put 50,000 shares into, you could do that all day, right? Because there's, a, there's an AP on the other side of that who will happily negotiate that trade with you. And if you're trading 50,000 share blocks, you've got a guy you can call and that guy will get you a good price. So the problem is there's sort of this barbell, which is at the very small and the very large Almost every ETF is completely tradable. Most of us don't live in those worlds, though. Most of us want to buy more than 100 shares of something, and we're probably not lucky enough to be trading a block of 50. Now we're talking about, well, can I get 1,500 shares of a thing through that never trades? And that's where people get hurt. There's some really good takeaways there. So listeners, one, use limit orders. So market orders do not use in general, unless it's the, the spiders. Two, Really good points. If you're trading 50,000 shares or more, you can almost always get in and out pretty darn near net asset value, almost regardless of what the ETF is. Because what Dave mentioned, these APs, these authorized participants can create and redeem big share blocks in what we call these creation units. One note that I also wanted to comment on for smaller investors, a lot of people don't think about this. So obviously you have expense ratios, which is people's usually number one. Second is bid ask spreads, but also a lot of people 
people ignore commission rates. And so for smaller accounts, so we're talking $500,000 and less, what you pay on commissions in many times is actually more significant than your expense ratio and bid ask spread. And so people that are traditional brokers just paying, you know, $20, even $10 uh, commissions at this point, um, you know, that could be one of your biggest costs. In particular, people that are actively trading, that is a huge draw on returns. So there's actually a handful of brokerages now and robo advisors that have 0% trading costs, which we think is a pretty awesome innovation. The trick with the no transaction fee or the no cost uh, ETFs is you, you, you still have to be careful which ETFs are there. You know, if you're trading with, if you're a Schwab customer, obviously you can trade the Schwab ETFs without having to worry about a fee and they happen to be super cheap that you're not getting robbed or anything like that. If you look at some of the lists of what's available to trade without a fee at other brokerages and including at Schwab, it's a real hodgepodge, right? It's not like you can trade everything for free. And some of the funds in there are the most expensive funds in their segments, right? The most expensive competitive ones. So there, there's really no completely free lunch in the world. There's a reason why those funds are available to trade for free. It's because they're paying the brokerage to be on that list, right? Yeah. And, and that means that they have to charge you enough to have that money left over to pay for your transactions. Just be cautious of that and don't just assume that because a fund is on the the free list that that also means it's the best fund for you and there's some there's some brokerages in general that have free execution and we know Robinhood is one I don't know the sustainability of the business model but there's certainly some out there that the, the fee compression is coming down I mean almost you see it in Barron's every week almost all the big brokerages are down to about five bucks a trade so yep. listeners if you don't know what you're paying for transaction costs chances are you're paying too much so certainly go look <laughs> it up because we, that, that's we, sort of a universal. It's like if you don't know what you're paying your for your investment management fee in your fund, you're probably paying too much too. I was looking at an advisor's ADV the other day who's a traditional low-cost, well, not even low-cost, a traditional DFA guy and, and saw that he paid 20 to 40 bucks per you know trade on these mutual funds. I said, man, for Whoa. small accounts, that is a 40 bucks. Come on, you're stuck in 1982. Anyway, let's move on. So a couple more questions. Um, one of the questions is you see a lot in the media. It drives me crazy all the time. And it's, it's also a Twitter question. And it says, why do so many people think ETFs will bring about stock market Armageddon? <laughs> you know, and, and almost every time that there's a big market gyration, people are looking to ETFs to blame. Why, why don't... And, and, and including there's been even some comments. I mean, USA Today you know, was talking about this where they said that investor would pro investors would probably be better off had ETFs never existed in the first place. And their comment was kind of because they're tradable and, and people obviously do self-destructive things. But but why does the media often kind of get this topic wrong? If they do, maybe, maybe they don't. Maybe you think ETFs do cause Armageddon. So the self-destructive behavior argument is is inarguable, right? Investors are awful at timing. They've always been awful at timing. And if you let people trade, if you engender more trading, people will simply be worse at timing more often. So I, I don't think that that's an ETF problem. I think that's an investor behavior problem. And that's part of why you do podcasts like this. And I run a website called ETF.com because ultimately the only way you solve that problem is through investor education uh, and through good advice. We're doing what we can on that front, and that really doesn't have anything to do with the ETF structure. I think the Armageddon arguments um, come from 
well, they, there are a couple of different arguments, and I think they mostly come from the same place, right? They come from people who are trying to defend the old guard. So if you actually trace a lot of these stories back and you look who gets quoted in them, um, it tends to be people who are trying to defend active management shops that have not been performing well, or they're trying to defend the lack of transparency in their investment process. Uh, and those ultimately, I think, are pretty losing arguments. Um you know, I think the the most famous one recently was the paper by Inigo Fraser Jenkins that compared indexing to Marxism. Uh, you know, big big giant clickbait headlines. That's part of it. Is that's where it's coming from. But the actual arguments people are making are worth at least understanding. So there there are really two different schools of thought. One is the indexing problem. Right. And the indexing problem is that if you reduce the argument to absurdity and you say that 100% of every market participant's dollars was in an index fund, then there would be no price discovery. And that is, you know, that is objectively true. At that kind of ridiculous extreme, yes, in fact, you would destroy price discovery. We're a long way from being in that problem. And there are natural pressures, i.e., uh, active managers and, uh, and activists who push very hard against that ever becoming a real problem. So I, I'm fundamentally unworried about that argument. And, and in fact, I think that the the pressure of the that active-passive debate, like you were saying, Meb, really is just driving costs down. And fundamentally, that's probably a good thing for investors, period, right? There are good active managers out there, and they don't all have to charge 2%. Well said. I, I have so much to talk about on that topic, but I, I think you just did a good job talking about it. I, otherwise, I'll start getting a headache. A couple more quick questions. We're running out of time. One, so if you look at kind of your wish list, or maybe if you said kind of what's missing from the industry going out next five years, uh, we do a, we did a fun ETF contest a few years ago on ETF ideas. And it's fun to look back and see the ones that have launched, the ones that haven't launched, um, you know, some of the really terrible ideas and many laughable and some that are terrible and laughable, but have launched it as well structure. What, what do you think is missing? What would you like to see not just for products, but also maybe for either regulation or ideas, anything that out there that you think is uh, would, would be on kind of your wish list? Oh, sure. That's easy. So from a, from a nerdy regulatory perspective, uh, I, I would be a huge advocate and personally put a lot of my own time into the passage of an ETF rule. Um, right now, ETFs live by loophole, right? There, there is no piece of legislation somewhere that, that there's no act that created the ETF structure. ETFs are created still to this day through a whole series of exemptions and loopholes. And can I please not do this? Can I please do that? And that leads to all sorts of bizarre haves and have nots in the industry. The most recent example probably is, you know, when PIMCO first launched BOND, you know, their total return bond ETF. Their initial relief that let them launch it, the, the initial loophole, um, said they couldn't own any derivatives of any kind. Nothing. You can't. You can't own an overnight futures contract. You can't. Uh, you can't buy a, a credit default swapped against a bond that you're worried about. Nothing. Now that's not. It wasn't true for most of the rest of the industry, but their particular relief completely hamstrung their strategy and created real deviations between what they could do in the mutual fund, which it used derivatives for all those things, and what they could do in the ETF. Now, eventually, they went back and got it fixed, and they were able to run the strategies more similarly. But those kind of small, subtle differences between issuers' ability to do things is rampant across the industry, and it affects 
honestly, every little corner of the business. Um, now, there are standards now. If you've launched a new ETF today, your lawyer who's filing for you is going to use a, a kind of boilerplate that is easy to get approved. But your exemptive relief will still be different than iShares, which was you know one of the first in the game. So I, I would love to have an ETF rule that rationalized that and leveled the playing field and cleaned up a lot of the mess in the corners. That that would probably be my number one wish for the industry. Um, the net result of it would be better competition, slightly lower cost for everybody, and and this whole business of you know sending your paperwork to Washington and praying they let you run a fund would go away. Uh, that'd be my number one. Well, preach to the choir on that one. I mean, the classic example is there's such an unlevel playing field where not only is it like unlevel between, say, people who got active versus a passive exemption, but it's also when they got them. So <laughs> there's people that have the exact same rules, you know, had you got approved prior to 2009 oh, yeah. or 10 and people after, and it's just totally bananas and it's such a mess. One that I often think about is, do you think that the industry will ever solve or figure out a way to trade ETFs or even a brokerage house that's kind of like the way the mutual funds trade? Because one of the big adoption issues, I think, is going back to liquidity and the trading, is that people can't just throw in a $10 million order and get the end-of-day price. Do you, do you have a, Is there a solvable solution there? Do you think that'll ever happen, or is that just kind of impossible from the structure you think yeah so there I, so it is a solvable problem um you you have effectively a version of this in the way canada deals with it, it in the existing structures the way funds are approved right now um no right it's not something that can be solved by uh, an exchange magically waving their hand and making it all better i don't believe uh, now if somebody's willing to take the other side of a nav trade then yeah, you can get these things done. But right now, there's no economic reason for a third party, you know, Susquehanna or KCG, somebody who's out there on the on the other side of most of these big trades. There's no economic incentive for them to offer an institution or an advisor a NAV price, right? Because they're on the hook to deliver a basket at the end of the day. The best they could possibly do is to create that basket at NAV, which means they've made zero money on their trade. <laughs> Yeah. Right. So there's an incentive problem there. Now, if if people want to start pushing the incentives around, um, you know, if issuers want to start moving money into the hands of the traders, what, you know, directly or indirectly through exchanges, et cetera, in order to incent that new order type, a nav, you know, an end of day nav trade as opposed to a, you know, just a market on close, you know, order or something like that, they could do that. I'm not aware of anybody really lobbying too hard to to make that happen. And for the most part, a solution like that would mostly benefit very large institutions, not mom and pop investors. And mom and pop investors are the ones who are probably most put off by the fact they can't get that NAV trade. If there's anything that Wall Street's good at is figuring out solutions when there's incentives involved. So I, I remain hopeful. I don't have any good ideas. I actually not even close to having any good ideas. Lots of terrible ones there. Um, <laughs> let's let's wind down a couple couple more quick quick questions. So you know, kind of pulling back. Um, one thing we try to do on the show is help listeners walk away from each episode with a little bit tangible, actionable advice to help them make them better investors. What, what, what piece of one advice would you give or offer, ETF folks or not, that you think would, would help uh, listeners the most? You know, we, we've talked a lot about stuff 
already on this podcast that that I think is very much in the weeds and in the corners of of things. Costs, commissions, uh, you know, we talked about securities lending briefly, et cetera, and all of those things making the right choice, like the ETF A versus ETF B, or put this trade in well, but don't put this trade in well. Those matter. But in, if you're looking at ETFs as beta vehicles primarily, which I think most people are, right? They're looking for their large cap equity exposure. Those little things are dwarfed by the differences in what's in under the hood, right? The actual things that are being held by these ETFs. And almost every investor that I talk to at any level makes the same mistake of assuming that there's really no difference between the 200 different large cap ETFs because they're all ETFs. They're all based on an index. Who cares? The dispersion of returns in every little corner of the ETF market between the winner and the loser in any given year is enormous, right? Just something like financial sector ETFs, right? How many ways can there be this skin that cat? Well, the answer is last year, it was about a 30% difference in returns, right? So big, giant numbers because of these differences in approach to portfolio construction, just because you're an ETF investor doesn't mean you can turn off your brain. If anything, it means you have to become an expert in understanding what's under the hood and understanding how different index methodologies and different active management styles are going to produce very different patterns of returns. So I mean, maybe it's a little pedantic, but at the end of the day, what's under the hood matters way more than all the little nerdy stuff I spend most of my time worrying about. Well, I was going to say investors don't need to become experts. They just need to read, let you be an expert expert and then they can just read what you write i, I think you, i think you should rename your column jeff i also think we should name the podcast good trading hygiene good investing <laughs> hygiene i think that's a good name dave we got one more question for you and it's i'm, I'm going to move it a little differently normally we finish up in 2017 asking uh, the podcast guest, we say, what is your most memorable investment? Um, I'm going to skip that with you. Uh, I have a more interesting question, which is, I know, like me, you are very interested in games. So I want to hear your top three games you like. Either you can you can take it one of two questions currently or all time. Either way, oh, wow. give me three favorite games. And I want one of them to be something most people kind of an unknown game. Okay. Uh, so that's such a broad, broad spectrum. So I'm, I'm going to guess- do of all, t- I'm going to do of all time that you can still play. Okay. Uh, and, and, uh, number one is like the nerdiest thing ever, but freaking Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, man. wow. <laughs> I would Dungeons and Dragons probably literally saved my life as a teenager. Um, and, and I still play today and I'm not ashamed of it. And a surprising number of people in the ETF industry also secretly play role-playing games, which I think mm-hmm. is hilarious, uh, but I won't out anybody here on this podcast, but I think, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of escapism. When I'm not working, I want to be not working. I work a lot. So, uh, so wh- however you get that escapism for me, I love playing D and D with a bunch of friends. Uh, you know, it got a lot more interesting when we could all drink, that's for sure. But, but that would be number one. Uh, number two, probably a video game called mass effect. There's the series of video games. I don't know uh, that. Which, what what which, platform is that? It, almost anything xbox ps4 pc they, they've been out on everything at this point uh it's a, it's a long series of games there have been four of them now uh and and i've had endless amounts of enjoyment from them and then for my one that people have probably never heard of uh i will go with an obscure uh, it's fairly obscure uh board game called caverna 
by a designer named Uwe Rosenberg, which is, I'm not making this up, about being the world's most average dwarven cave farmer. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. There's there's a great resource, and I was... um, you know, I played all the traditional games growing up and, and have just always loved games. And there was an article by 538 a few years ago that the thesis of the article is there's a website called, I think, Board Game Geek. And it said, basically, they did a quantitative analysis of games. And they said a lot of the traditional games aren't that highly rated. But if you were to look per kind of age, here's the, the best games. And so I've spent the last few years, every Christmas, my nieces and nephews get whatever the random highest rated game is. So there was Hive and Blockus and Train to Ride, all these games I, I'd never even heard of on the board game side. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to, to add two more to the list. I've never heard of Caverna or Mass Effect. We'll, we'll add those to the list. I actually, we, I was laughing with some friends the other day because in LA they have, um, I'm a terrible bowler, but they have... Uh, special at the like fancy bowling lanes in LA that for all you can bowl three games a day, including shoes through September is 40 bucks. And I don't know how that's possible. So I'm a little nervous because like you said, it's a lot more fun once you can have some beers too. So there's a good chance by the end of the summer, I've gained 30 pounds and uh, (laughs) And are bowling on every and in bowling every lunch, you know, and, 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 you know, but the good news is my average score is up to 230. And so I'm, I'm going to totally Lebowski it out by the end of the summer. Oh, yeah. Dave, it's been an awesome, a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Where can people find you if they really want to follow your uh, writing going forward? Well, so you, you can definitely find anything I'm doing at ETF.com. Pretty easy to remember. Um, but if you just want to pay attention to things that I'm writing or if I'm speaking somewhere, uh, Twitter's probably Twitter's the only one I really use. Uh, and it's just at Dave Nottig. Easy enough. Are we going to find you at the um, the West Coast IMN conference? Are you coming to that? I, I am. I'm. I don't know. I'm. I'm moderating some panel. Um, uh, Josh and Barry asked me. Uh, uh, Josh Brown and Barry Rithold from Rithold's Wealth Management asked me to come out and talk ETFs on some panel or other. But I haven't seen what I'm supposed to do yet. But I'll be there. Listeners, that's I think mid June. So coming up soon, I'm going to be there. It's down in Dana Point. Great lineup. It'll be a lot of fun. Dave will buy you a beer if you uh, if you come and tell him how sure, how you're not? doing it. I'll uh, send you the bill. Caverna. <laughs> Dave, it's been a blast. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Oh, thanks for having me. A real pleasure. Listeners, thanks for taking the time out to listen. We always welcome feedback. Shoot us questions for the mailbag at feedback at themebfabershow.com. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes. We'll link to all of Dave's various papers, tweets, games, and everything else at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes elsewhere. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Today's podcast is sponsored by the ride-sharing app Lyft. While I only live about two miles from work, my favorite means of getting around traffic-clogged Los Angeles is to use the various ride-sharing apps, and Lyft is my favorite. Today, if you go to lyft.com forward slash invite forward slash meb, you get a free $50 credit to your first rides. Again, that's lyft.com forward slash invite forward slash meb.